Rachel Naomi Remen, welcome back to the new school. Thank you, Michael Lerner. <laughs> you know, I was reflecting about how we would hold this conversation, and I realized that this is almost exactly the 30th anniversary of when we met. It's a little... Because this is 2013, I know we met either early in 1983 or 82, so it's been 30 years. And I was reflecting what it was, was the the deepest insight that I had from these 30 years of working together. <laughs> and I finally concluded that I discovered it, which is that neither of us is getting any younger. <laughs> Unfortunately, both of us are getting older, too. But one of the lines of yours, I, I have been learning from you for 30 years, and uh, you, uh, let me just say, for those of, who don't know you, you're clinical professor of family and community medicine at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. You're the founder and director of the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness at Commonweal. You've been a pioneer of relationship-centered care and integrative medicine, and US News and World Report called The Healer's Art, your uh, groundbreaking curriculum for medical students, which is in 70 medical schools around the world, a profoundly innovative curriculum on reintegrating the heart and soul into contemporary medicine. Uh, the Healer's Art is now taught yearly in more than half of American medical schools and in medical schools in seven countries. Um, and your New York Times best-selling books, Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings, have sold more than a million copies and been translated into 21 languages. And you've been public about the fact that you have a 60-year personal history of Crohn's disease and uh, really teach from the place of having lived with a severe mm -hmm. chronic illness since you were very young. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we've worked together for 30 years, uh, you as the medical director of the Cancer Help Program, and really, the person who gave me the courage to start the Cancer Help Program. I remember mm -hmm. when we met, we were, uh, it was a terrible year for me. Uh, my father developed cancer, my dog died, my marriage fell apart, and the funding for Commonwealth fell apart, and I'd laid off 40 staff people, including myself, mm -hmm. and the place was just hanging on by its fingernails. And I was uh, doing consulting work for an eccentric dentist who, uh, uh, remember that? And we met. That's how we met, through the right. eccentric and we, dentist. We met through this eccentric dentist <laughs> and who had gathered. He was a good guy. But, um, and um, we met in a coffee shop uh, in San Francisco. I think it was actually a restaurant. Oh, yeah, okay. Right? And there were, there were a bunch of us. Right. Um, other people who were involved with healing and medicine right, yeah. and healing and all of this. Do you remember what happened? Well, you tell the story. Oh. Well, um, I had heard of you um, and that you were this crazy man out here at the, on the west, uh, you know, in, in West Marin where nobody went. <laughs> where the buffalo were still wandering right, around. Right. You know. So um, I had no idea that I was going to, to meet you and my car broke down twice trying to get, and I kept thinking, well, I'm just going to turn back, I'm, and then something going to keep going. <laughs> so I sat down at this table, and, and everybody, we were having this sort of luncheon, right? And I turned to the right, and there you were. 
And we started talking, and we started talking about healing, as I remember. And you had some wonderful things to say about it. And I was absolutely, I mean, breathless, mm. breathless. And we were talking and talking and talking, and, and then we looked up and we were sitting at the table alone. <laughs> <laughs> they had all eaten Everybody their lunch away. and left. <laughs> <laughs> And I told you about this crazy idea of starting retreats for cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And you looked at me and said, well, why don't we try it? Well, why not? Yeah. Right. And I did not have the courage to do it by myself. Well, I had all these cancer patients yeah. because I was doing, you know, psychosynthesis work with people right. with cancer on this houseboat right. in Sausalito. Yeah. Right. Now, you've had a long history uh, of uh, depth engagement with psychosynthesis. For those who aren't familiar with psychosynthesis, how would you describe psychosynthesis? Well, it could be described in many different ways. Um, it is related to Jungian uh, psychology. Uh, there's a thought that there used to be a cell somewhere um, that Jung and Roberto Acigioli, the founder of psychosynthesis, and other such people used to meet and you know, encourage each other in archetypical work. Um, psychosynthesis is also the, what might be called the externalization of the Bailey work, the esoteric work. So there's an esoteric dimension of psychosynthesis, because whenever there are archetypes, there is a universal dimension, a mysterious dimension, if you will, of, of whatever work you're doing. Um, and my sense is that uh, all the work that I have learned with imagery came through psychosynthesis and psychosynthesis training. The use of images as the language of the deep unconscious and the dialogue between our deep unconscious and ourselves, uh, which takes place in imagery around us all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, all of this seemed really natural to me. Mm -hmm. I'm, um, <laughs> you know, we are the odd couple, you and mm -hmm. I. Um, I am a flaming mystic, and you are a brilliant intellectual. <laughs> Somehow, we have managed in the last 30 years to love each other. Uh -huh. <laughs> but I think I've, I've moved closer to your position than you have to mine. <laughs> I'm probably incorrigible, Michael. <laughs> now, just, just starting with a specific, I, I pulled out a few... Uh, objects. Um, and um, let me just say a few words. This one is, um, came from uh, actually the Amazon uh, from 1966 when I had a Fulbright scholarship. And I went up in the Amazon and somehow I found myself in a little town where there was a prison camp. And one of the prisoners had carved this man and it was called O Anjo na Cabeça do Homem, the angel in the head of man. And so I bought it from him, and it's followed me around ever since. And this uh, white cat, this uh, little uh, porcelain cat, I almost always put in my sand trays. It's usually the first thing I put in the sand tray. And what it represents for me is my wife Cheryl watching over me. And, um, you know, um, it's, it's been... Uh, it's just sort of the first thing that shows up in the sand tray in some powerful way. So I brought out a Kuan Yin because you have a wonderful story 
about um, being a, uh, a young professor at Stanford, just okay. having been given the associate directorship of a pediatric center. And why don't you tell that story just briefly, <laughs> oh, because yeah. it's such a nice story. Um, well, here she is, the lady. Um, oh, this is a nice one, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a young doctor when I was the only woman on, finish the sentence, the only woman in the house staff, the only woman in the medical school class, the only woman, the only woman. Mm -hmm. So that being a woman um, was considered um, a professional uh, shortcoming. I mean, something I had to overcome, you know, uh, in order to be a real doctor. Right? <laughs> Which is amazing, because right now, uh, more than 60% of all the medical students in the United States are young women. Mm -hmm. And this was not the case back then. And um, I discovered very quickly that I needed to um, develop the masculine side of myself, the side of myself that's hard-edged and decisive and technically very competent and took no prisoners. And that the more that I could do this, the more I would be accepted. Um, I remember when I uh, went into my residency program, um, there were three teams of residents, all very well-trained men, you know. Uh, and the, the chiefs of the three teams um, drew straws, and the guy who lost got me as uh, the first-year resident. And about four or five months later, we were running back through the tunnel under the hospital um, at about three or four in the morning, and we had been called for an emergency C-section, and these two very, very tiny, frail babies um, had been born, and we managed to keep them alive and stabilize them and get them into their incubators, and we had done well. And so we're running back to the house there for us and side by side to go back to sleep for a couple hours before we were due on the wards again. And he says to me, you know, um, I didn't want you on my team. And I said, yeah, no, I knew that. And he says, well, I just want to tell you that uh, I don't feel that way anymore. He says, working, you, working with you is just like working with a man. <laughs> I was thrilled. 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 I mean, I, I held this moment close to me, you know, for, for years before I realized what it actually meant and how you can give away your wholeness in order to get approval and never even know that you're doing this. And as I progressed, I kept getting rewarded for being more and more wounded. The more wounded I got, the more rewarded I got. And finally, I was actually given, uh, when I came out here to Stanford, I became the associate director of the pediatric clinics, also the only woman in the department of pediatrics. Can you imagine this? <laughs> um, and they gave me an office with the rug and now my name on the door. And they, I mean, and this whole thing was locking in. My woundedness had become so much a part of me, and I was totally unaware of this. They gave me a check for $100 to buy a chair and a lamp. So I go to the Stanford Shopping Center to buy the chair and the lamp, and I walk into the store, 
and there on a table is a statue of a woman. And she is pouring water out of a vase onto the ground. And I am riveted. And I say to myself, I must have her. I must have her. Very strange response. And I pick her up, and she costs $100. (laughs) Put her back down again, because I don't have that kind of money as a young doctor, and they didn't give me the $100 to buy a statue of a woman. And so I buy my lamp and chair, and I go home. And that night, I have a true night terror. A true night terror. Um, And I dream that the statue has come to life, and she's calling out to me. And she's saying, don't leave me behind. Don't leave me behind. And as she does this, my experience is that I'm dying. That I am dying. I have a sense of, of, of dread, and I am literally dying. And I wake up, and I'm terrified. I said, well, what was that? You know? My goodness, you know, just like a child, I've had a terrible nightmare, you know? The next night, I have, a, have the same thing again. And so I said to myself, I guess I should buy this thing. <laughs> so I figure I, I, I just won't eat lunch for a while, and I'll go and I buy her. And I bought her, and I brought her to my office. There's no place to put her, because there was nothing personal in the office. There's no place for anything personal. So I put her right on the desk. And she's a lot bigger than this little statue. She's this big. And I could see her in all the interactions that I was involved in, teaching residents, dealing with staff. Uh, she was in my line of vision. I was on the phone. You know, I pick her up and hold her, right, for seven years. And then I had gone through a process of going to Esalen and discovering that not everyone in this world was a doctor and there was a larger, a larger perspective on life and that maybe healing actually had something to do with medicine. Very radical thought in those days, right? And I got to the place where I decided I was going to leave Stanford and they promoted me and I left anyway. And when um, I left, the only thing that I got to take home from my office were the things that belonged to me. And it was a couple of books and the statue. So I take her home, and I put her on my kitchen table, right? And maybe a week later, someone comes to visit me and looks at her and says, oh, you have a statue of Kuan Yin. And I say, what's that? And he says, oh, you know, Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion the feminine aspect of the Buddha, right? I had recognized her. And you know, these things, when you recognize an object, it has meaning for you. It's because it has resonance with something in your deep unconscious. And in the presence of the object, that thing inside you is activated. It becomes alive. And I had put her on my desk so that the part in me that was so walled off could be <coughs> enlivened. And eventually I was able to remember who I was, and I left. So the archetypes heal us. They remind us of wholeness. They remind us of who we are. We have to be willing not to know. Um, I mean, when I reached out for her, 
I, my conscious mind had no idea what was going on. My unconscious mind said, this is something you must take with you. You mustn't leave it behind. Mm. So what is the relationship in your um, vision of symbol to archetype? Of symbol to archetype? I think symbols are the way we personalize archetype, mm -hmm. if you want to look at it that way. Mm -hmm. And I, the power of symbols are just amazing to me. We do a lot of work, I do a lot of work with symbols with doctors, because you have to get past the cognitive mind and the, 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 the tremendous mental structures and constructs that have been substituted for reality in people's um, experience, and which are held in place by the whole culture, you know, so that it's a whole bunch of people who have these same constructs. And by going into this, this language, because this is the language of the unconscious mind, the language of the part of us that participates in the archetypes. Um, when you, you ask people to begin working with these rather than with words, they go beyond these structures that have been built to something much more universal and um, life-affirming. So is Kuan Yin for you a symbol or an archetype or both? Who knows? Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, I regard Kuan Yin as something I participate in, mm -hmm. something everyone in this room participates mm -hmm. in. Um, the fact that we all do participate in the archetype of compassion and that we can care about the suffering of people whose names we don't even know may be the hope of the future of the world. Mm that when people are of different religion or a different language or a different life experience or a different belief systems, they, we can still connect to them and their pain matters to us. That may be the way that we're going to get out of the mess we're in. Mm. I don't know, but I suspect it's important. Now, you and I have both worked a lot <coughs> with the language and the experience of, of deep, intentional healing in, in different ways. And uh, on your wonderful website, your personal website, uh, Rachel Naomi Remen, uh, Remembering Your Power to Heal, uh, you talk about what healing means for you. And, um, and I wonder whether for you, uh, because we both talk about, a lot about the relationship of healing to wholeness, is there a real distinction between individuation in the Jungian sense and healing, or are they fundamentally the same in different languages? <laughs> Michael, I don't understand what you said. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Wait, go, go back to the individuation piece. That's where I, where I dropped at the bottom. Individuation and... Rachel, I believe you knew exactly what no, I said. No, <laughs> So my question is, let's take, when Jung, when Jung said that our lives, and you studied Jung, when Jung said that our lives are an unfolding, when um, a, a process by which we gradually shed various uh, less core versions of ourselves, and we move in a process he calls individuation 
closer to some sense of our true self. Uh, and he also says that uh, that movement in consciousness is fundamentally caused by, um, by uh, uh, th that it is never achieved without suffering. That suffering is a core dimension of, uh, of how that works. Um, so healing, uh, when we are wounded, either physically or in some other way, clearly suffering is involved, and clearly the movement toward wholeness, at least to me, seems to be simply a different language for the unfolding of the acorn of our self, uh, which Jung calls individuation. So I'm wondering whether for you, uh, you and maybe you don't think about individuation, but, no. <laughs> but I'm wondering whether you see healing, at, for example, you use the language of meaning a lot. Uh, it seems to me the language of meaning uh, follows a parallel trajectory to the language of healing, just as the language of individuation does. And so I'm curious as to whether, uh, and perhaps it's not a meaningful question for you, but whether you see these as essentially the same process in different languages, or whether um, there are important distinctions for you among them. Well, first of all, let me honestly say that I've never read Jung, mm -hmm. Jung. <laughs> mm -hmm. and um, I can't understand Jung, mm -hmm. okay. because it's, it's an intellectual construct mm -hmm. for me. Okay. Um, I would put this differently, okay. that there is in people um, a will to live, a will to manifest, mm -hmm. a unique wholeness which has never existed before. It's different for each one of us. And that it is, um, it draws us towards it. Mm -hmm. It magnetizes us. Mm -hmm. um, and that we use the events of our lives, whether we're aware of it or not, to move towards this fullness of expression, mm -hmm. if you want to think of it that way. Mm -hmm. okay. um, that painful events can move us towards this, mm -hmm. joyful events, transformational events move mm -hmm. When someone has a child, mm -hmm. right, or, or when someone has an emergency, um, a larger self manifests. And it's very interesting. People will say the same sorts of things about it. They say, I've never been this person, but I always knew it was there but I never knew it was there, but I knew it was there, and when it, when it happened, when I changed in this way, it was totally familiar, and I've never been here before in my life. You know, you get this sort of paradoxical speaking. And uh, I think anything that breaks up our habit of how we think of who we are, often that is a crisis of some sort or pain, right? We are for a moment lost we're sort of adrift. And at that moment, that part of us that yearns towards our wholeness can take hold of the rudder of the boat. Mm -hmm. So and, healing is yeah. not the only language in which one can describe it. You just now, for example, you talked about the, the, this will to unfold, or whatever the language yeah. was. That was not a language of healing. That was a language of a will to unfold that 
it's did not require mystical. healing language. No, it's more more okay. of a. It basically says life. Life is process is is natural. Right. The process of growth, if you will, is at the very heart of of the life force. Right. Now, in your uh, wonderful, one of the things you do and have for many years is that you hold what is it monthly evening sessions with physicians at your house uh, and uh, communities of your um, friends and colleagues show up. And one of the things you do is that you you give them a topic like courage or service or something like that and you ask them to bring an object or a poem or something and that resonates for them. So, are, yeah, and these are transformational conversations. Right. And actually, it's better if the group chooses the oh, choose, object okay. because their collective unconscious they, will choose They choose it. the object or the subject? The subject. Yeah. Okay. And it isn't so much that they bring objects, they bring stories. Okay, excellent. And a story, of course, is another way to connect to archetype. Yeah. You know, um, it's not a physical manifestation. Yeah. Um, but it is as powerful a manifestation. And for example, the, in this particular thing, and we have finding meaning in medicine groups, we have finding meaning in nursing groups. There's a groups of mothers in the Midwest that do finding meaning in motherhood. Any service work that you do, you can gather a group of people who do the same service work and taking words that are part of the experience of that service work. In the case of medicine, it might be loss or love or grace or death or suffering. And asking people the price of admission to a, a finding meaning um, meeting is to bring a story from your personal experience of your profession or of your service work about that topic either when it happens or when it doesn't happen. And in bringing um, these stories, they, people just sit, and maybe a dozen people, tell their stories. And as they tell the stories, the archetype, which is part of the, the deep meaning of medicine, becomes manifested in all these different ways but it's the same archetype. And the interesting thing is, um, I don't know if any of you are physicians here, but physicians usually hang in specialties. I'm a cardiologist, you're a, a neonatologist, I'm an oncologist, you know, or I'm a medical student and you're a professor of so-and-so. So we put up a lot of barriers. But when we start telling our stories, let's say of compassion, we go below that to the um, archetype of service that lies below all of this and all the divisiveness of our, our training falls away and we become a single community. And what's even more interesting is you can take a group of nurses, a group of doctors, a group of psychologists, get them to tell their stories about suffering or compassion and you discover it doesn't matter how anyone is trained, we are one community who care about the suffering of people whose names we don't even know. Hmm. Well, you just answered the next question I was going to ask, but I want to underscore it because it interested me. I was wondering to myself whether these seed words like service or courage or compassion were archetypes or something else. I think they're And archetypes. you see them as archetypes. 
I think they are. They're so universal, yeah. Michael. Yeah. Um, and everyone in in the practice has the stories. Right. Um, which is not to say that you know grace is a province of medicine, right. or you know, but there is a certain way that these archetypes manifest mm -hmm. in medicine. And by the way, I wanted to share, if we can go back to symbols for a moment. Yeah, please. I had the experience very recently of being asked to come to the Department of General Internal Medicine at UCSF mm -hmm. to their retreat, which looked to me like exactly like a medical meeting, except it wasn't held within the hospital, which made it a retreat. <laughs> and to do something um, about the meaning of the work, right? So I had told everybody, I sent them a letter, bring an object, and this, is, this one happens to be mine from our So that's the lighthouse that the you're talking about. The lighthouse, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That represents to you the meaning of your work as a physician, right? And I, I, people came, there were 60 of them, and they were sitting at round tables, and I told them to take everything off the table, and they were worried. All the papers were, <laughs> and, and the, the, you know, the, the, the iPads and all this stuff, clear table, right? And then to take their objects out, and half of them had forgotten objects. They hadn't brought them because the, the conscious mind was resistant. So I said, okay, look in your pockets, look in your purses, look in your attache case, find an object that means has something to do for you with the meaning of your work, right? And my heart sank. And I'm sitting next to one table of 10 people, and there was something like seven tables of 10 people. And I see people reach, and they take out their beepers. <laughs> they take out their cell phones. They take out pens. They take out, and, and I say to myself, oh my god, I mean, this is going to, for the first time, this is really going to fail. Right? <laughs> And uh, we, we, I set it up, and, and the first person speaks, and they're just going to put their object in the middle of the table, and then the next person speaks, and put the object in the middle of the table, and everyone else listens generously, simply listening to know what's true for the person who's speaking. And even that's hard, just to be quiet. It's really, really hard in, in medicine. Uh, silence is like a hemorrhage. You, know, you have to do something about it right away. Um, and they start, the, the, they, the one person at each table starts speaking, and I start eavesdropping on the table that's right in front of me, and the guy holds up his beeper. And I say to myself, God, and he says, this is about my commitment to the suffering of the world. He says, anybody, anywhere can call me, and I am there. This is what connects me. To, it makes my ability to make my commitment visible in this world. I always fell off my chair. And he puts it down in the middle. And then someone holds up a fountain pen and says, you know, we just transferred over to the um, mm -hmm. uh, computer and, and we were sitting next to patients looking at the computer. He says, with this, my handwriting is totally unique. My medicine is totally unique, just like this. And when I sit down at my computer with my patient, I put my hand on my fountain pen mm -hmm. to remind me. I mean, and I said to myself, you know, these things are real. The archetypes are real. 
They can speak to us through beepers, through fountain pens, through little statues. Here is one of my archetypes, by the way. It's a silver chain. It's a silver chain of little, round, perfectly round links. I have many of these. Each one is a human being. Um, it's the chain of, of everyone. And I wear it around my neck in various different forms. And it reminds me that um, we're not alone. We're all connected. Beautiful. You, you asked to uh, have the lighthouse on oh, the table. Yeah. What does the lighthouse mean to you? Well, see, for me, it, it captures my own sense of the meaning of medicine. Um, that, um, and also medical education, which, I, as you know, I'm a medical educator mm -hmm. and not a clinician at this moment. Um, that what is required in these very, very difficult times when the basic values of medicine are, are under attack, and that a completely different set of, of values um, is driving the system. Uh, values such as productivity and uh, pro, uh, you know, uh, profit and, and, and what have you. Um, you know, the idea that a corporation would run a medical system, something that doesn't have a soul, would run healthcare, right? It's just so um, extraordinary to me, and the, the great suffering that the people within the system who are called to it from some very deep place in themselves and then are prevented from expressing their excellence daily. Right? Mm -hmm. So um, I see the lighthouse as med medical education. It holds, um, it holds the light steady. Uh, in the midst of chaos and storm where things can go aground on the rocks. Mm -hmm. it, it, it just holds the light steady. And this one in particular, I think, was, the, um, was meaningful to me because it's broken. The base of it, there's a big hole in it. And I, um, there's a big hole in my physical base as well. It's called Crohn's disease. And it holds the light steady anyway. I remember sitting with you and several of our friends once um, and listening to a wonderful conversation that you were having with a beloved friend of ours um, about the experience women have as they get older of becoming invisible. And I wondered, in, in archetypal terms, uh, or just in depth terms, um, what do you make of that experience? What, uh, how do you hold that experience, which so many women I know talk about, which is the, just the discovery that there's a point at which they begin to feel invisible? Well, it isn't just women, first of all. <clears throat> it's any older person. Women have been invisible when they're young at times, too. Well, that's true. <coughs> but I, think I see people nodding. Certainly women, women tell me more that they feel invisible than men do. So maybe it's true of 
I mean, it's it, certainly it's true. true. There is a point it's in... It's true of all of them. Yeah, okay. But what about then just this issue of aging and invisibility, however you slice it in gender terms? Well, you know, my mother was a rather remarkable woman. Um, she was a pioneer of uh, public health nursing in the mm -hmm. United States. And she had a career when uh, women just didn't have careers. People felt... Uh, uh, she was morally suspect because she was not a full-time, you know, mother and, and wife. And people felt sorry for me because my mother worked. Right? Um, she would say such wonderful things. She'd say, Rachel, you will love being a little old lady. And I would say, why, Mom? She says, you can say anything and get away with it. <laughs> anything at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then she says, people will talk in front of you and reveal things to you that they would never reveal to anyone that they thought was really listening. <laughs> mm -hmm. So from her perspective, it was a very interesting viewpoint on life. Mm -hmm. It allowed for some very interesting um, observations. And I think that's true, by the way. I think that's true. My own experience is that if I sit in a, in a meeting and I sit there and I, I just sit there and then I'll say something, it's almost like a chair has spoken. <laughs> and it's kind of fun. And I, could, I, I was just telling someone us very recently, actually just a little while before we started, a story about this. Um, one of our young doctors had a astrocytoma, which was converting to a glioblastoma. And this is a mom of two young children. And she'd come up from LA for a consultation at the uh, neurosurgery department at UCSF to see if there was anything, any hope for her. And she'd come alone, so I told her I would go with her. So we, we went together. And we're sitting in this tiny little room waiting for the neurosurgeon to come and go over all the studies. And, right. and he arrives, and I'm sitting next to a table. She's on the examining table. There must be about 10 feet between her and me. We're talking one of those real small rooms. And as far as he's concerned, she and he are alone in that room. I mean, he, he's almost brushing my knee as he turns around, and I don't register at all. I'm not in the room. Now, he has no idea who I am. He doesn't know I'm a fellow doctor. She's about 35. I was, at the time, probably about 70. I could have been her mom. You know, he, in fact, that would be the reasonable thing to think. Well, he never introduced himself. He never said, I, I, I wasn't there. Okay? Four days later, I'm sitting at a board meeting because um, I'm at UCSF, and we're going to review this guy's um, proposal for a grant. Right? <laughs> so he comes in, and I'm one of five people sitting there. We get all the papers out. And he, he, he walks up to me and says, Rachel Remen, I've admired your work for so long. I've looked forward to meeting you. And I said, well, actually, we've met before. And he says, we have? And I say, yes, about three days ago, you know. <laughs> he had no recollection that I was in that room. None. None. Yeah. So 
Which let, now, from yeah. my perspective, mm. I got to watch him in action. Yeah. He wasn't putting anything on. Yeah. I got to see, and he's, he was really wonderful with his patient. Wonderful with his patient. Did he get the grant? Yeah. <laughs> he needed the grant. It was for humanizing residents. <laughs> <laughs> I told them this story, <laughs> and I said, we've got to give this guy this grant. <laughs> so, you know, many years ago, you said something that has stayed front and center with me ever since. Um, in fact, I mean, one of the truths is that, you know, we've worked together for 30 years. Every time I'm with you, I want to grab a pen and start taking notes. And, um, but you said something so many years ago, and then I heard you repeat it actually at Lenore Leffer's memorial. But it really has stayed with me. And it's not that you're the first person to say it, because it's been around since the beginning of time. But you say it better than anyone I've ever heard. Um, and you said at Lenore's memorial, Lenore Leffer's memorial, who co-led the cancer help program with me for 25 years, and who you went to high school with uh, mm -hmm. in New York, um, you said uh, that, uh, that if the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and learn to love better, and then you went on about something. Well, that view that you hold, that perhaps the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. And so in my explorations of the wisdom teachings in archetypal psychology, it became very clear to me that that dyad of wisdom and love um, is fundamental. And then that very often there's a third point that makes the triangle, which in some views is will. So there's love, wisdom, and will. That's right. um, but That's right. will in some sense is the enactment of the love and the wisdom in the world, if, in some sense, if you wish. But, um, and, and of course, that goes back to the Bhagavad Gita. It goes back all the way in the, in the uh, Judeo-Christian traditions. You just find it again and again. This, and, you know, uh, and so um, I guess my question is, how has that how has that formulation of the purpose of life sat with you through the years that you have offered it to people as a purpose? I mean, has it been the same or has it deepened for you? What, what does it mean to you today? What have you learned about uh, that simple statement that the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and learn to love better? What a wonderful question, Michael. Um, well, first of all, you know, um, when Roberto Astagioli died, um, the head of our institute went over there and opened one of his drawers, and he had little slips of paper that he'd written down thoughts on in an old band, spidery handwriting. And we each got a slip of paper from him and framed it. And mine said, the will must lie like a deep pool of power behind every act of love. The will must lie like a, like a deep, deep pool of power behind, behind every, every act, act of, of love. love. Mm -hmm. And my sense is that 
the alignment of the will and the heart is where wisdom comes in. Mm-hmm. That uh, wisdom isn't an abstract. It's something that needs to be manifested. Mm-hmm. And it takes will to manifest. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, sometimes it takes a lot of will mm-hmm. to hold to a commitment despite all obstacles mm-hmm. and, and all difficulties. Yes. And my own sense of the purpose of life, by the way, you know where that comes from. Um, the, the early reports of near-death experience, that people went down that dark tunnel, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, they met uh, the, the being of light who sent them back again. Mm-hmm. And in that process, they came to understand that there was a single purpose to all life, which is to grow in wisdom and to learn to love better. That's it. The thing about that, it feels true to me because every one of us can do this no matter what life we're leading. You do not have to be the president of the United States to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. You can do it as a taxi driver. You can do it as a street cleaner. You can do it as a doctor, a nurse, an artist. It's accessible to every, it's, it's an archetype. It's accessible to every human being. And that the distractions, like, um, you know, it's so interesting. There, there's, a, a, a re, there's a thing about looking at work these days. Mm-hmm. There are three ways to look at work. Work can either be a job mm-hmm. where you get your money to do the mm-hmm. things that matter to mm-hmm. you, you know, but it doesn't mm-hmm. matter to you. Mm-hmm. It can be a career where you're mm-hmm. looking for power and recognition mm-hmm. and, you know, establishing a field. Mm-hmm. Or it can be a calling where you are expressing the deepest values and meaning um, that, that are your unique operating principles, that you get to express them through every action that you make, the simplest <coughs> to the most complex. And that when work is a calling, we don't both burn out, mm-hmm. no matter how difficult it is. And my sense is that when work is a calling like that, you are growing in your ability to love mm-hmm. and your wisdom. Mm-hmm. And you know, you mentioned the healer's art. Um, 15,000, 1,500, I wish it was 1,000, 1,500 medical students take it every year. And a couple of years ago, they, the medical students decided um, at UCSF, right, where I still teach it, Personally. You mean 1,500 at UCSF? No, no, 1,500 oh, nationally. Nationally. Take it every single year. Yeah, so yeah. there are about you know, 15,000 students who right. have taken it. Right. Um, and, and so at UCSF, the students decided that they wanted to make a T-shirt. And you know, UCSF is one of the great research schools in the country. Mm-hmm. They, when they're listed, Harvard is three and we're four. I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. But it is a powerful, very powerful research school with a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of people get promoted on their research, not on on their teaching. And um, so I said, sure. And they said, we've got a tagline for the course, which is called The Healer's Art. I said, well, what's the tagline? It's The Healer's Art because medicine is an act of love. And I said, you want to put that on a T-shirt? And they said, oh, yes. And I said, so we turned loose 50 medical students in bright red shirts with this written all across. The healers are because medicine is an act of love. 
they were walking all year long, like mm -hmm. signboards, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then the next year, we got another 70 of them mm -hmm. doing this. And you know, it's true. Medicine is an act of love, and medicine attracted me, not because I'm a scientist, God knows, but it seemed like such a front row seat on life that I knew if I sat in that seat with my eyes open, I might grow wise. Mm -hmm. And that was the draw. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting when you, when you open up that discussion with the medical students, how many of them have that sense of the privilege of being close enough to life to grow wise. So what about Socrates' teaching that <laughs> he was the one wise man in Athens because he knew that he did not know? And Jung himself, although he was the namer or founder of the archetype of the wise old man, he did not, he, he did not believe that, that uh, the search for wisdom uh, basically, he said that the wise don't need to look for it because they've already found it, and those who aren't wise can't find it. So, and I must say that <laughs> that for myself, I absolutely don't feel one iota wiser now than when I met you 30 years ago. Michael, you so, are wiser well, now. Than <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put I can it, attest to as this. As they say, a little learner goes a long way. You know? and, uh, uh, but I certainly am not wise. And, um, but I think this, uh, for me personally, I like Socrates' line that, that he was wise because he knew that he did not know. And I'm curious, when you say, uh, I'm just curious how you hold, in other words, I believe that the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and learn to love better, and yet what it means, I think both of those frames, what does it really mean to grow in wisdom? What does it really mean to learn to love better? Somehow learning to love better is more palpable to me, but growing in wisdom is to me to discover that you know that you do not know. The whole thing is a mystery. Well, see, I would say that the realization that you don't know is the first step of everything. Mm -hmm. Everything. Mm -hmm. Letting go of all the things that you think you know mm -hmm. and saying, I know nothing. Mm -hmm. Then you can begin. Mm -hmm. It's a, I guess you would call it beginner's mind, mm -hmm. but you can begin. And my sense is that there are no people who are without wisdom. There I mean, are no people who are without wisdom? People sit in judgment of other people's mm -hmm. wisdom. Mm -hmm. My wisdom is more mm -hmm. important than yours because my wisdom has to do with art and music mm -hmm. and your wisdom has to do with, uh, you know, uh, laying a rug on a floor, mm -hmm. right, you know. But that's not true. Every human being accumulates wisdom. It's impossible not to be, you can't be alive mm -hmm. without accumulating wisdom. And the way you accumulate it, I think, is one, to not know, and two, to be willing to recognize that the heart is an organ of vision. Mm -hmm. That it isn't a valentine, that the heart is a way of seeing that allows you to see the reality below the surface of things. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, the mother who slaps down a bowl of canned tomato soup in front of her, mm -hmm. her daughter who's come home for school for lunch, mm -hmm. 
and says, oh, God, here's another bowl of it. If you look through the heart, when you put that bowl of tomato soup in front of that child, you are making an investment in the future of the world, and you're making an investment in your own immortality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a way of seeing such that you become more and more connected with everything and everyone around mm-hmm. you. The, the subject of love, wisdom, and will is the thing that's been guiding my exploration of archetypal psychology for the last mm-hmm. uh, year. And um, so, for example, in the Bhagavad Gita, in the last chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, um, Arjuna asks Krishna, which is the best way to find you? Is it the way, essentially, is it the way of wisdom or the way of love? And what Krishna says is basically, he says, you can get to me through wisdom, but it's long and arduous and easy to get lost. He says, love is the sure way to get to me. Um, And then um, Rudolf Steiner uh, uh, talks about love, wisdom, and will. And again, he says, um, you know, that that love is the preeminent force. I think he's talking about the nature of God, uh, and I think it's Steiner. But basically, he says there are three forces in the universe, you know, love, wisdom, and power. He uses power instead of will. And he says that that God is love and that that wisdom and power are secondary forces. So all I'm saying is that for me, as I've taken this extraordinary path over the last year in exploring these issues, I found love, wisdom, and will. I mean, you hear, you know, Freud says, what matters, love and work. What does Rollo May say, love and will. Um, you know, again and again, you find love and work, love and will, uh, love and wisdom. Jack Cornfield's The Wise Heart is the name. So these, this triad of terms seems to me to be useful in sorting through, um, uh, of course, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, you know, God's might and his compassion, you know. Um, again and again, you find uh, this triad of terms as a form of psychic architecture for exploring the mysteries of life. It's an archetypical doorway. Right. 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 The thing that I would say, though, here is that um, love is power. Mm -hmm. Will is intention. Mm -hmm. Okay. I I wouldn't say will is power. Love is power. Will is intention. Okay. It is a focusing of attention and action, and okay. na- almost laser-like. Right. Someone once said about me, Michael, that anything between me and what I thought was important had a me-sized hole in it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I I have that capacity to focus and hold that focus mm-hmm. sometimes for many many years. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it feels to me inside, like a very different experience, love is, it, it's the power of, of a living thing, life force, the things that break through because they're alive, you know? Mm-hmm. But I do think that those three dimensions are the, the key of life. Maybe even the reason to be an incarnated person Mm -hmm. is to participate in in those three things. Love, wisdom, 
and will. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you look at, at the, the underpinnings of most of the world's religions mm-hmm. and practices of religion, mm-hmm. they further one or another, if not all. Right. When you think about it, dimensions. wisdom, yeah. love, and will, you can say the head, the heart, and the hand, right? Exactly. So, you know, there's yeah. what comes out of the wisdom dimension in the head, what comes out of the heart, the love, what we actually do in the world, the head, the heart, and the hand, wisdom, love, and will. You know, there's an old formula for the physician, mm-hmm. um, very old, mm-hmm. which goes like this. The physician needs to have the eye of an eagle, mm-hmm. the um, um, heart of a lion, mm-hmm. and the hand of a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my sense is that triad is another way of talking about wholeness. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, you've, you've been living with Crohn's disease for 60 years, but in the last few years, you've, you've really had some health challenges that were very significant. Has there been a further learning in this period of your life um, from the challenges of the last few years? Has something emerged that you didn't know from all the years of living with Crohn's and so on? It's a funny experience because, you know, the challenge of the last few years are the challenges that other people face. I know. Because it's like I'm 75. Right, right. right. (laughs) Um, I I suddenly became old. Right. And so I have the the things that old people have, like Mm -hmm. bad backs and arthritis and, Mm -hmm. and poor vision and I... I can't see anything up close, you know, all of this stuff. And the feeling that my, my response was very bizarre, which is, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for Crohn's disease. <laughs> Wait a minute, I paid it, I, I, I gave it the, at, the, at my work, you know, I, I don't have to donate here. <laughs> and it feels almost a little insulting. My sense is, though, anything that snaps you out of your daily unconsciousness, Mm -hmm. your daily, you know, moving through life without seeing, without hearing, without feeling, anything that snaps you out of that is a teacher and opens you to the experience of the power of love, the power of wisdom, the power of focusing your will because something matters, something matters. It takes you out of habit into awareness. And there's nothing quite as good as as illness for doing that. It's really, really a a powerful uh, wake-up call for a lot of people. And and it, it stimulates growth. You've chosen to work with us here at Commonweal for uh, certainly 28 years. We met 30 years ago. So the intention to create something together has been here for 30 years. A long time. Yeah. Um, Why do you think you made that choice? What, what, What was it about this? eccentric, odd little group of people out at the edge of the Pacific. I mean, you could have worked anywhere. What, what was it that, that, it's a non-obvious choice for you. Uh, why do you think you decided to make this a base for so much of your work? Well, I think the freedom of it. 
um, was very appealing to me, certainly uh, early on. Mm -hmm. um, put this, uh, I'm a maverick. Mm -hmm. And I have, um, I used to think, you know, I was always told as a child that I was spoiled and stubborn. These can turn out to be very powerful uh, and useful qualities in an older person. <laughs> um, but I have followed what, what has meaning for me for most of my life. And there's always been a headwind. And when I discovered here that other people were following what was meaningful for them in exactly the same way, even though they were working, let's say, with the oceans or you know, with toxic chemicals, it, it didn't matter what we were working with. The way we were working with it was exactly the same. And that by each of us following our own unique vision in life, these visions naturally fit together. When I talk about it, I just have a sense of overwhelming good fortune for having found such a remarkable way to work together with its true community. And true community is very, very rare in this world, I think. I'd like to open it up for some questions. Uh, please keep questions short, and please say your name first. Anybody like to ask Rachel something? Yes. My name is Mary, and I was interested when you were first talking about being a physician and getting in touch with your masculine side. And then you kind of went from that to talking about being wounded, and I didn't get that connection. Ah, there, that's, yes. Um, I had become my masculine side. So my masculine side in my own experience was who I was. And the entire intuitive, anything that I said here in the last hour um, would not have been accessible to me at all. Not at all. I mean, I, I, I knew only the things that could be proved. Um, I respected only the things that I could technically do. Uh, I respected expertise as the highest human function. You know, um, I had literally given away half of myself. And in my case, that half of myself was very, very close to who I am. Because I, um, I am an intuitive person. And I had nothing but contempt for intuition. I mean, we, we need data. That's the only way you know something is true. And so I was, I was being rewarded. It was almost like amputating uh, my left arm. And the more I amputated it, the more uh, I was rewarded for being a great person. Yeah. Very seductive. So much so that I had forgotten I had a left arm. And um, I had lost myself completely. And that's what I meant when I said I was wounded. I have a question right here. Yeah. Um, I think you said the heart, the heart is a way of knowing or something similar. 
Do you um, think this? Any? It's a way of seeing. A way of seeing. It's a perception. Yeah. So do you think there's um, any sense in trying to figure out um, a scientific or a physiological basis for that, or is it best just to leave it as a, or is it best just to leave it as a metaphor? It isn't a metaphor. So it's it is a reality. More than a, <laughs> so it is a reality. Yeah, and and you know, do I care? I have never cared why something happens. I only care that it happens. I mean, half of what I work with most of the time when I'm working with people, I have no idea why any of this is useful. I just know that I, over the years, I've come to trust it absolutely. Um, most of the things that are real are not measurable, at least for me. <laughs> but they're real, and you can you can take them to the bank. <laughs> you can build on it, you know. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Well, you talked about oh, I'm Vikita. Um, you talked about visual cues, and I was wondering in medicine. I mean, I find it's really interesting first to get a picture of the person and color and all that. And I wondered how, how you feel about that. So you're visual, I can yeah, tell. totally. Um, I'm face blind, which is one really? of the most embarrassing things that, that I live with. Uh, if in the last 10 years, um, I cannot recognize people. If it, I, I once had you, I don't know if you remember this, you came to the door of my writing studio at yeah. night and I hadn't uh-huh. expected you. Uh-huh. And you opened the door and I said, who are you? Right? I, I, I have I no... I that was face-blind. Oh, yeah. It's a really... It yeah. turns out Brad Pitt is face-blind, so oh, I'm no. very, I feel much better. <laughs> <laughs> but let me say that for me, um, I'm trained originally as a musician. I'm a Juilliard pianist as a child, very intense training. And for me, it's sound. Voices and the way your your voice sounds from day to day, I get a, a kind of sense of, of this, the this, the state of the union, as of your union, from just hearing your voice. And for me, doing work on a telephone is very intimate. I'm not distracted by how you look. Oh, no. that is fascinating. And that is, we're all different. And for you, it's it's a visual. And, you know, um, people, when they come to my home, say, oh, you must be a very visual person. My home is entirely cream-colored, you know, and filled with light and a few little green leaves here and there. And um, what it is, is it has nothing to do with the objects. If you get the objects in a certain kind of arrangement, something happens to the space between them. It becomes big and silent. And I create that space. It has nothing to do with the objects at all. So when you remember people, is it their voices that you do it with? I remember their story. Whatever someone has said to me, it, like, for example, if I um, um, met you, let's say, 10 years from now, let's hope, huh? <laughs> I met you 10 years ten, before, by but the way. <laughs> ten, I, I haven't got that. Don't worry about it. But if you said to me, I was the lady who spoke to you in this, I would pretty much be able to remember what you said. Because mm-hmm. I can never in, remember that. But in doing, <laughs> in doing therapy, when I, you leave your therapeutic office, I have no recollection of anything that's happened. 
somebody would come back and sit down in their chair, and I'd sit in mine, and I'd know every session that they did for the last five years. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a kind of um, situational memory. Mm-hmm. It's, and we all do things differently. But the important thing is to, is to be aware of how you do these things. Mm-hmm. And to maximize your experiences and your learnings uh, and know which way it works for you. Because that's the important thing, is knowing which way it works for you and inhabiting that way fully. Yeah. couple more questions. Yes. You mentioned just at the end, Lorna is my name, that you mentioned at the end that it's difficult to find true community. Why do you think that is? <laughs> I think everything in our culture tends to um, uh, offer barriers to community. Uh, I think the way we define other people, my experience of true community, if you were to look at the people who I experienced true community with, on the surface we look incredibly different. Incredibly different. We do many different things. We. We, um, we're trained in completely different ways. We live in completely different ways. But it's something different than that. It has to do with why, why we do the things we do. It also has to do with a certain way of listening. I don't know how to put this. Um, in a place of true community, you're safe. There's no judgment. And you're listened to in that way. Uh, People listen not to compare themselves to you or to decide if they like what you're saying, they don't like what you're saying. They listen to you simply to know what's true for you and to witness that and to validate it. And then things move, yeah. Two last questions right here. And Thanks so much for today, um, Rachel. My name is Claire, and I was really uh, so grateful for the exploration, articulation of the purpose of life. And now I know what to do. Thank you. Um, <laughs> keep doing. Um, so suffering and crisis and an illness or a diagnosis, or for some people going to prison or uh, growing up, poor or and with any luck finding the right support for getting in touch with that are all wonderful teachers and wake-up calls. In your experience or perception, what are some of the ways that people in a, a more comfortable zone in their lives get in touch with that, get that realization come through? Well, let me just say, it's all grist for the mill. We all have preferences for the way we would like to learn, right? But everything, if, if this thing is so, that the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and to learn to love better, everything can be, can be that purpose. You can walk into an elevator and have an experience in that elevator of, let's say, trusting whoever it was who built the damn thing, right? How often our lives are in the hands of total strangers who come through for us, right? You know, there's all sort of, it's all grist for the mill. The pain is not any more of a trigger to wisdom 
than standing online in the Safeway. And I think the real wisdom is to use the hell out of all of it. All of it. I mean, I have, I, I, I'm a shopper. I love wandering through Ross. I get some wonderful, well, you know, there's a wonderful cartoon in the New Yorker. There's this little lady who is obviously a society woman, and she's talking to her lawyer. She's doing her will, and she says, and do remember to scatter my ashes at Bergdorf's. <laughs> I go to Ross. in the New Yorker. But, you know, this is a meditation for me, walking through these, these places. I get incredible ideas. I see people. I see their anxiety over a set of sheets, right? You know, um, I feel anywhere, anything, getting a new car, anything. And not only are you a shopper, but you're a world-class shopper. I am. <laughs> Every stitch of clothing I have on, with the exception of my jewelry, this is secondhand, everything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm never shopping with Rachel. Is I'm a, always wearing somebody else's clothes, and so are we. We're <laughs> always wearing hand-me-downs, wisdom hand-me-downs, knowledge hand-me-downs. Yeah. So our last question. Hi, I'm Gustavo, and I wonder if I imagined this, but I thought that you were going to talk a little bit about ritual. About, about ritual? ritual? Oh, sure. Maybe I made it up in my mind. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Say a few words about ritual. Yeah, I, I, I use the symbols and do a lot of ritual. Um, and let me say one thing really quickly. Um, ritual is that old esoteric thing, as above, so below, that we can create a series of either actions or um, experiences such that collectively some archetype comes through and manifests right in front of us in the room. It's like a lens. It's like creating a lens. And I do a lot of ritual with doctors because after you do the ritual, then you can talk cognitive stuff. It, they have to be able to connect to something realer than an idea. And then the ideas have, have meaning. So I do a lot, a lot of ritualistic work, yeah. All of the Santre stuff is, has that dimension, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Rachel Naomi Remen, thank you for 30 years of work together. <laughs> thank you for coming my, back to the new school. My good fortune. And, um, <laughs> and may you be blessed with health and oh, energy you, to work uh, in your great work for many more years to come. Thank you. Thank you all for coming.